The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Sorry I couldn't be with you last week. I was not feeling well. I came up here Saturday night. I was studying just over in that building over there, and I started to descend. That's a way to put it. And I descended into a not very good place, and I called Kenny, and I said, man, you're going to have to pull out your sugar stick sermon. <laughs> and he did. I, I watched it from a semi-comatose state in bed last Sunday morning. Uh, man, he did a great job, didn't he? Amen. I mean, literally filling in at a nine o'clock phone call. I read a story that Charles Spurgeon told. Uh, he, he, he said this story uh, to the people that came to his pastor's conference. So he, he, he told the story to pastors, and it was the last pastor's conference that he presided over. He died January 31st in 1892. This was April 1891, and this was the story. He said, and I, and I want to tell this story to you because I think it gives some insight into what we're trying to do here at Capitol, especially if you're a, a first-time guest. But he said there was a king, and this king wanted to uh, show his citizens how much he cared for them. And so he decided to start holding these feasts, these banquets every week and provide for the citizens of the kingdom the finest food so that the people could come and enjoy and sit and feast and, and fellowship together. And uh, the king noticed uh, as the weeks went by that less and less people were coming to these banquets. And he became really curious, and, and he went out and started talking to the townspeople and, and, and asked, why, why aren't you going to the feast that I've provided? And they, they said, well, we don't like your food. It's not very good. And so the king decided to go inspect the banquet. And he went and he surveyed the tables at the feast. And he was surprised to see that instead of serving the, the choice steaks and ribeyes and sirloins that he had provided from, from the, the cows that he had had slaughtered, they were serving just gristly, bony meat. And instead of the nice white breads, they were serving just crusty, old, just waste. And instead of the fine wines from his vineyard, they were serving watered-down wine from the pond. And he, and he called the, the head of the banquet uh, to him. He, he says, what's going on here? I've provided the finest choice foods for the citizens of my kingdom. Why, why are you feeding them these things? And he said, well, Keen, you have to understand uh, that meat, it's too rich for them. 
It's too rich for the people. They, 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 they can't eat that. And the bread, they would never appreciate your bread. So, so we went and decided to make some bread of our own in our own kitchens and bring it to the banquet hall. And the wine, they don't have a palate for that. We could never give them that undiluted wine. They're used to drinking, you know, the, the, the stuff from the sewers. So we, we, need, we felt like we needed to dilute it. And Spurgeon looked at all those ministers, and he said, and that, my friends, is exactly what so many churches are doing. We've been given the Word of God, but yet so many pastors and churches feel like they have to water it down to not give the undiluted, unadulterated, unfiltered Word of God, but that they have to filter it, that it has to come through comedy, right? That we have to entertain you, otherwise you're not going to listen. We have to add on to it with our own ideas, and we're not going to do that here at Capitol. We are going to teach God's Word until the Lord comes home. So on that note, I want you to turn to John chapter 5. I want you to turn to John chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 33 to 39. Jesus says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that it is in them that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. If you remember, Jesus is surrounded in the temple by hundreds of people. Uh, if not thousands of people, and they're upset, they're angry, because Jesus healed a man born lame uh, on the Sabbath day, or he'd been lame for 38 years. And Jesus healed this man, and they look past the miracle, they, they don't really acknowledge that, they're upset that he healed this man on the Sabbath. And so Jesus has stated in no uncertain terms that he is the Son of God, and here he is now surrounded by people and he's given a defense of himself. And if you look at verse 31, look what he says in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's simply saying, look, in a court of law, if I were alone to bear witness that I'm the Son of God, uh, you couldn't believe me because you need at least two to three witnesses to confirm anything. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to marshal out four witnesses which testify that he is the Son of God. And this passage of Scripture is really helpful to us for an apologetic reason, an apologetic reason. The classic verse 
regarding apologetics is 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, apologetics is the science or the discipline of defending the Christian faith. And we get that word, apologetics, from this verse. The Greek word apologia is what's translated, make a defense. Now, we get our English word apologize from that. That's not what the Greek word means. The Greek word means to give a rebuttal, uh, to reply, to respond, to give a defense. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this text. He's, he's, he's giving a defense for one of the most important questions that you can answer as a Christian, and that is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's one of the most important questions that you can answer in apologetics. And so as a believer of Jesus Christ, uh, and as a member of this church, what we want to do is to send you out into the world as evangelist. We don't want this to be uh, just a, a, a preaching center where you come and you hear sermons and then you go out during the week and do nothing. What we want to do is mobilize you and equip you and send you out to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and to win people to Christ through your testimony and through uh, the teaching of the gospel. And in order to do that, you have to be able to give a defense of the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If uh, the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon comes to your door and starts arguing with you about whether Jesus is God, do you have four or five texts that you can point to? Do you know how to argue with someone? Or maybe you're here today and you don't believe that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. How would you know? How do you know? Well, what better way to learn than from Jesus himself? Jesus gives these four witnesses, and, and you can see it. This, this sermon preaches itself. Uh, it's right there. Who are the four witnesses? It's first, John the Baptist. Second, it's the works that Jesus does. Third, it's the witness of the Father. And then in verse 39, it's the Scriptures themselves. He says, search the Scriptures. It is right there. In fact, I was looking at my uh, children's uh, New American Standard children's Bible. It literally lays it out. The, those are the four witnesses. So we're going to look at these uh, in order this morning and call it a day. So first witness, the witness of John the Baptist. Now, we covered this witness in depth two weeks ago, so we're not going to spend much time on this witness this morning. But you can see Jesus says, uh, you sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. He says, I don't, I don't need this testimony from a man. Um, but, I, but I refer you to John so that you might be saved. And then he says this remarkable uh, descriptor of John. He said, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, here's why it's very important that Jesus mentions the testimony of John the Baptist. The prophets had prophesied that the way that you would be able to identify the Son of God is through the testimony of a forerunner. Does anybody remember this? So, for example, Isaiah in chapter 40, verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for the Lord. 
So the prophet said, there's going to be a man, and he is going to come in the desert, and he is going to cry out, and this man is going to prepare the way of the Lord. So he, follow the logic here. So if you can identify who the forerunner is, then you can identify who the Son of God is. That's the logic. And that's why when you read through Luke's gospel and, and, and Matthew and Mark, that's why they spend so much time on John the Baptist. Have you ever wondered that? Why, why all this detail about Zechariah and the temple, all this stuff about John the Baptist? Why is it here? It's there so that you can identify the forerunner and then understand who the Son of God is. That's the connection. And we looked two weeks ago at John the Baptist's message. His message was a message of judgment, repentance, and then signaling who the Messiah is. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's John 1.29. So that's the first witness of John the Baptist. The second witness is found in verse 36. I want you to look at verse 36. Jesus says, and this is the witness of Jesus' works, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says that his own testimony is greater than that of John the Baptist. And he says, I have these miracles to confirm this, to verify this. Now, John the Baptist is a great spirit-filled man, but these miracles point to the fact that I'm something more, that I am indeed the Son of God. Now, when Jesus is talking about works here, he's almost certainly talking about the signs that he did, the miracles. Now, Jesus did a lot of great works, a lot of great teaching, died on the cross for our sins, so many things. But here specifically, the way that this word is being used is to talk about the miracles. Now, I think we need to talk about this because there's a lot of confusion about what a miracle actually is, okay? Let me give you a definition. A miracle is a work that God accomplishes apart from natural means, where there can be no natural explanation for an event occurring. Do you hear that? So a miracle is when something happens and there's no natural explanation. You, you can't explain what happened. So a miracle is not that car missing you by an inch in the car crash, okay? A miracle is not you driving around the Kroger parking lot and finding that spot right by the front door. Not a miracle. Uh, a miracle is not winning George Strait tickets pulled from a boot out of thousands of people and being the only one selected to go to the concert from the, from the boot barn. Yes, that happened to me. <laughs> Not a miracle. Listen, if, if there is a trillion to one odds that something could happen by natural means, it's not a miracle. It's the providence of God. Now, God can do something re remarkable in His providence 
It's like, it's like those, the planes that were looking out for the, for the Japanese fleet, and then through a cloud cluster, the guy sees the, the Japanese carriers at Midway. Not a miracle, providence of God. A, a miracle would be if, if you were on a deserted island, it, and not that you got picked up by a boat, but you walked between two palm trees, and the next thing you know, you, you were in New York City. That would be a miracle. Or if you were in a tussle and somebody cut off the ear of one of your friends and somebody in the other party picked it up and put it back on his head and reattached it right then and there, that would be a miracle. Or if you were out on a boat on a lake and it became stormy and then all of a sudden, you saw one of your friends walking on water coming towards you. That would be a miracle. Sound familiar? You see the difference? A miracle is a supernatural act of God. And Jesus did so, so many signs, wonders, and miracles, just healing thousands of people. It's just remarkable number of healings. And when you read the Scriptures, what you see over and over again is people have to do something with this. People have to do something with these miracles. Nobody could deny that the miracles were happening. So, for example, uh, a few chapters earlier in John chapter 3, Nicodemus uh, comes to him. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do. No one can do these miracles that you do. We know that you are sent from God. Uh, in Acts, when Peter stands up at Pentecost, he's, he's speaking to all the Jews there in Jerusalem who had, who had witnessed Jesus' ministry. He says in Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you, by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. In other words, you saw this. It, God attested that this was the Messiah, the Son of God. And then, you know what? They ended up believing. They didn't deny the miracle. They had seen the miracle. They just didn't understand exactly what the miracle meant. Jesus says in John 14, 11, he says, believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves, the miracles themselves, okay? So, so believe on account of these works, these miracles that I'm doing. Now, when you read the Gospels, there's four responses from people when they encountered the Lord Jesus doing a miracle. And you know what's fascinating? Not one of the responses is a denial of the miracle. No one ever says, I don't believe that the miracle happened. Everybody acknowledged the fact of the miracle. Here are the four responses. This is, this is fascinating. First is superficial, unsaving belief. And you see this in John chapter 2, uh, right at the end of John chapter 2, it says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs, the miracles that he was doing. Next verse, but, 
Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, these people believed because it was a spectacle to them. They thought it was cool. They thought it was flashy. They thought that maybe he would usher in the kingdom of God. We see this in John chapter 6. But they didn't believe in the Lord Jesus as Savior and Lord. It was a superficial belief. It was unsaving belief. The second way that you could respond to the miracles, and that is what's going on right here in the temple, and that is with disdain and unbelief. Disdain and unbelief. You see the miracle, you acknowledge the miracle, but yet they're mad at Jesus that he did the miracle. Do you see that? It's unbelief. And you, you, people, people say all the time in, in the modern context, they said, if I could just see a miracle of Jesus, then I would believe. Then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. Because most of the people that saw the miracles of Jesus throughout his ministry did not believe. They walked in unbelief. Where did Jesus do most of his miracles? In Capernaum around the Sea of Galilee. What does Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty three? He says, and you, Capernaum, will, be ex- will, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works, the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. They would have repented, but you didn't repent. You didn't believe. You saw all the miracles, but you remained in unbelief and in disdain. So that's the second response. The third is the most frightening, and that is that some saw the miracle and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They committed the unpardonable sin, and that is this, is that they attributed the works that Jesus did by the power of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. They said, you do these miracles, not by the power of God, but by the work of Satan. This happens in John's gospel, John 8, 48. The Jews answered Jesus. They said, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Awful. It's just tragic that they would accuse Jesus of being possessed by a demon. If you turn over to Matthew 12. I want you, everyone to turn to Matthew 12. And I want to show you this. This is just so stunning. And I want you to understand what this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It begins in verse 22 when a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, that means he couldn't speak, was brought to him, brought to Jesus, and he healed the man. So no one can debate this. He heals the man. He, he can now see. He can now speak. So that the man spoke and saw. And verse 23, all the people were amazed. Everybody's amazed. Nobody denies the miracle. And they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, listen to this, they said it is only by Bilzebul the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. That name, Bilzebul, means Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies, the the Lord of the demons. 
They're saying it's only by this power that he cast out the demon. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided itself will stand. That's simple logic. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? In other words, this is silly that you're proposing that Satan is casting out Satan. It logically just doesn't make sense. He says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Uh, apparently, uh, there was an exorcism ministry done by some of the Pharisees. You remember in uh, Acts, uh, they tried to cast out some demons. There were Pharisees all the time also trying to cast out demons. Apparently, some of them did. Jesus is saying, who do they cast out demons by? Well, go talk to them. They'll be your judges. Then verse 28, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You, you see it. Look, look at the signs. See what's going on here. See that the king is here, that the Son of God is here. The kingdom of God is, is in your midst. Verse 29, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus, when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, had his first victory over Satan, his first victory over Satan, and he was able to bind Satan's power. And he goes out from Satan's presence doing these miracles. He's saying, I'm raiding Satan's kingdom. I have bound him, and now I'm doing this work, and people are being ushered into the kingdom, coming into the kingdom as a result. Now, listen carefully here. Verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, there's two teams, Satan's team, and there's the kingdom of God, my team. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come, because you have committed the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is not adultery, murder, lying. The unpardonable sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Some people say, well, that means that you deny the Holy Spirit. No, 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 that's not what it means. It, blasphemy, by definition, is something that you speak. It's speaking and attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan himself. And the reason why that is unforgivable is because the Holy Spirit is the only means by which you can enter the kingdom of God. The Holy Spirit is, is the one who opens your eyes to the truth of the gospel, who who, who uh, compels you to see Christ for who He truly is. And if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, He's done with you. You're dead, and there's no hope. But if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit Himself keeps you from doing that. And th this is something that even very few unbelievers do. Very few unbelievers blaspheme the Holy Spirit. But it's this attributing 
the work of the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of this, the Holy Spirit to Satan. So that's the third response. Now, if you would turn back to the Gospel of John, John 5. The fourth response is obviously saving faith. And we've seen that uh, over and over again. The most recent example is this nobleman at the end of John chapter 4 whose son was sick, and Jesus says the word, and he says, your, your son is healed, and the man goes back, and it says that he and his whole household believed. And that's the response that we are to have as a result of Jesus' works, as a result of Jesus' miracles. Now, you might be saying to yourself, but I wasn't there. I haven't seen Jesus actually do a miracle. So how can I trust that these miracles are true? Several reasons why. First, the men who gave testimony that Jesus did these miracles, many of them died giving their life, sticking to their testimony. They said, we believe this so much, we're willing to uh, be executed uh, to, to preserve this, to, to testify to it. Another reason is the sheer number of witnesses to these miracles. Paul says that there were over 500 witnesses to the resurrection itself. Uh, here at Pentecost, what we read in Acts 2, there were thousands of witnesses to the miracles of Jesus, and they were unbelievers. And, and that's the other thing, is that many of the witnesses were people who never believed in Jesus. They never acknowledged that He was the Son of God, but they believed in the miracles. So the question is, not did the miracles happen? That's not the question. The question is, do you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of the miracles? That's the question. When I was in the Marine Corps, we did air traffic control, and we would set up at uh, the runway. We would go out and set up expeditionary runways, and we would set up uh, what we called the uh, aluminum beer can. And it was basically this big, this big uh, can up in the sky. We would, we would build it. It was like three, four stories high. And it would send out a radio beacon. It was called a TACAN. And basically, if you were dr uh, flying your aircraft around, you could pick up that ping that signal that says, there's a runway here, there's a runway here, there's a runway here. That's what Jesus' miracles are doing. They're saying, this is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. This is the Son of God. That's what they're saying. Now, as an air traffic controller, you can send out that signal through the TACAN, but it doesn't rescue a pilot in distress unless he comes and lands his plane on the runway. So it's not enough to know that there is an airport there, a runway there. you got to bring your aircraft in and navigate down and bring it down to a, to a safe landing. It's the same with faith in miracles. It's not enough to know that Jesus did the miracles. It's not enough to even convince someone that Jesus did the miracles. You have to propel them and point them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what John says. These things are written, these signs are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing that you might have life in his name. That's the, the purpose of the witness of the miracles.
So the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the works, and then third, the witness of the Father. Look at verse 37. He says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Now, there's a lot of debate about what Jesus is talking about here. He, he refers to this witness in the past tense. He says that the Father has borne witness about me. Uh, so he's not talking about the Mount of Transfiguration. That, that's still in the future. He's certainly not talking about that. He could be talking about Jesus' baptism. Remember Matthew three seventeen when Jesus was baptized, it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, that is an important witness, but I don't think it's the witness that John is talking about here, that Jesus is talking about here. And the reason I say that is because not very many people were there when that happened. And we only know that John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus himself heard that voice. So what, what witness is Jesus talking about? Well, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. Turn to the right, all the way towards the end of the New Testament. And John, who, who recorded this, had a lot of time to, to think about this when, when he wrote this epistle. And he talks about the witness of the Father. And I think this witness that he mentions, this is 1 John 5, 9, is the witness of the Father that, he, that Jesus is talking about here in verse 37. So look at verse 9 of 1 John 5. He says, If we receive the testimony of men, the witness of men, he says, the testimony of God is greater. So he's talking about the testimony of God. Now listen, this is so important. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. So God the Father gives a testimony. That God the Father gives a witness. And he's saying, you have this witness. You have this testimony. Now look at verse 10, where this testimony is where it resides. He says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, has that witness in himself. In other words, this witness isn't an external witness. It's an internal witness. It's a subjective witness. It's a witness that you experience on the inside that it flows from inside out. He says, whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So these believers uh, that John is writing to, they, they weren't around at Jesus' baptism. They didn't hear that voice of God. They, they've never heard God's voice externally, but they've heard it as a still, small voice in their hearts, that the Father has borne witness within them that Jesus is the Son of God. That's verse 11. And this is the testimony 
that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Now listen to me very clearly. No one can become a Christian without this internal witness of the Father. You can't become a believer unless the Father bears witness in your heart through the Word of God that Jesus is the Son of God. Unless that happens, you will never believe the gospel. You will never believe. Here's the implication for evangelism. When you're out sharing your faith and you're walking through the Roman road, when you're explaining John 3.16 and you're saying, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you better be praying that God is doing that backdoor work on the heart and bearing witness to that person that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Because if God is not opening the heart of that individual, they will never believe. They will never believe. God has to open the heart through this internal witness. Uh, Just turn uh, back to John chapter 6. Look at this. We're going we're gonna to talk about this in depth in a few months. This is John 6, 44. Look what Jesus says. He's talking about these disciples. They're grumbling, and, and, and he says this to them. He says, no one can come to me. No one. You, you can't come to me. You can't believe in me. You can't trust in me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That word draw is the same word that you would use to describe pulling up a bucket from a well. That's what God the Father must do in our hearts, and he bears witness that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me show you this from one more place. I know we're, we're doing Bible drill this morning. Uh, turn to the right to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. Verse three. This is one of the. This is one of the most important passages of scripture for my own ministry. This passage of scripture helps you understand salvation, the gospel, God's work. Look at this. This is. This gives you kind of the. This pulls back the veil, the curtain to what's going on in salvation. Remember when the Wizard of Oz, you know, the 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 the, the curtains torn back and you see things for how they really are. That's this. This is how things really are. Paul says this. He's talking about preaching the gospel. Verse 3, he says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. What's he talking about? He's talking about his experience of preaching the gospel to Jews and Gentiles, and they don't believe. He says it's like there's a veil over their eyes. And he says, these people, they're perishing. The, the veil is there. Then he says, why is this? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So who's the God of this world? Satan. He says, the, when you encounter that wall and, and you're explaining the gospel to someone, and you say, okay, I've laid it out. Do you believe? And they say, no, 
I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't believe. What is taking place there spiritually is Satan has blinded the eyes of their mind. And they refuse to come because they're in this state of spiritual blindness. Verse 5, Paul says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, so important. This verse, this verse will change your worldview. Look at verse 6. For God, God, this is this, is this internal witness of the Father. L- look at this. This is so remarkable. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. What's he talking about? Creation. Day one, Genesis. He says, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. Look what he's done. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. God has borne witness, has given testimony in the heart of the believer that Jesus is the Son of God. He does an inside game. Look what he says next. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. In other words, a, a clay pot was what you used to take the refuse out of the house. You didn't drink from it. He says, the reason why God did this isn't because we're spectacular. It's to show that the surpassing greatness is of God and not us. And he brings this witness on the inside. And that's why you believe. And I, I'm almost positive that that's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 5. Because look, look back with me at John chapter 5. Okay, now I think this will crystallize for you. Look at the last clauses in verse 37. He says, His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. He's saying, you don't know God. And you've never heard His voice. You've never seen His form. Otherwise, you would recognize it right here in front of you. So I'm right here. Look at the next clause right there at the beginning of verse 38. Notice how he, he speaks about this internal word, this internal element in their souls. He says, and you do not have His Word abiding in you. That's the testimony. You don't, you don't have this internal heart testimony of the Father in you that has implanted this desire to listen to the Word of God. It's missing. It's not there. It's absent. Now, here's what's fascinating. Who is the Word? Jesus. Jesus is the Logos. Same Word. Jesus is the Word. So the Father, through His witness, through His testimony, implants a desire to love the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. This is a work that the Father does, just a remarkable work of grace. So how do you know if you've experienced this? How do you know if you've had this internal witness? 
will you know if somebody comes up and asks you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And your response is, absolutely. And they say, well, how do you know? And you say, I just know. Because it's deep down in here. Because I've experienced him. And the Father has borne witness in my heart that he's the Son of God. And that's why all the martyrs, you know, you bring them out. And the lions are there. And they're saying, deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, I can't. Well, why can't you? You just say the words. Well, the Father's born witness. I can't deny him. I know experientially that it's true. I don't even, yeah, the miracles, that's great. The John the Baptist stuff, that's great. But I've felt it. I know in my soul that this is true. And Jesus is staring at all these Jews and saying, you've never experienced it, have you? You don't know his voice. You don't see his form. You don't have his word, the logos, abiding in you. And that's why you don't believe. That's why you don't believe. That's the third witness. So the witness of the Father. We saw the witness of the works that Jesus has done, the witness of John the Baptist, and now we are going to look at the witness of the Scriptures. The witness of the Scriptures. Look at verse 39. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, this verse, verse 39, there's a lot of debate about whether this verse is an indicative or an imperative. If it was an imperative, it would read like the King James. The King James reads, search the Scriptures. In other words, you Pharisees go, you Jews go, search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. If it's an indicative, Jesus is saying, you do search the Scriptures because you think that they have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Now, the, uh, one of the best ways to interpret Scripture, we said earlier, is interpret Scripture with Scripture itself. Another way is with the context. And I think what Jesus is saying here in the context, and we're going to look at these verses next week, is I think what he's saying is, is you think that you have salvation because God gave you the Scriptures, because you're a Jew, because you have Moses, because, because you have the law, because God's given you the feast and the temple and all these things. So I think what Jesus is saying here is uh, an imperative. So, so Jesus, if you, if you, that you there is not, is not in the, the Greek New Testament that's added to help interpret it. I think what Jesus is saying is, is in line with the, the old King James. He's saying, search the Scriptures. Go back and search the Scriptures. Uh, the Greek word is araneo, and it means to, to dive deep, uh, to, to start excavating something, to go down and, and start digging to get down into something. And, and that's not what these Jews were doing. These Jews were skipping on the surface of man-made religion. You know, you look at the Mishnah, there's not much Scripture in it. 
They're, they're not, that's the problem. They're not searching the Scriptures. They're not diving deep and examining what the Scriptures really teach. And Jesus says, if you go and you search the Scriptures, here's what you will find. They bear witness about me. They do. By Scriptures here, the graphi, the writings, what Jesus is talking about is the Old Testament. No New Testament book had been written by this point. Galatians probably wouldn't be written for 15 more years. He's talking about the writings of the Old Testament. He's saying, you go back, you study the Torah, the Pentateuch, you study the prophets, you study the Psalms and the other writings. It's they which bear witness about me. There's a famous story in Luke's gospel, if you would just turn to the left, on the last page of Luke, to Luke 24. This is the, the story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And this is the day of the resurrection, so this is the Lord's day, this is Sunday. And verse 13, it says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Pretty cool. Listen to what it says. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? He's playing dumb. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that, he had, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus, that's the he of verse 25, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, listen to this, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now, this, this could, I, I would have loved to have been there when Jesus did this. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then he goes to the village and they start to eat a meal and Jesus disappears. And verse 32, I love this, they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? He explained the Scriptures to them and how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. That's why we need the Old Testament. 
We're not going to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The message and the method of the apostles, especially when they would evangelize Jews, is to go back to the Old Testament and show how Jesus is the fulfillment. The fulfillment of what? All of it. All the promises. All the offices of the priests, the kings, the prophets. Jesus fulfills all these things. I'll just give you a couple quick references. Acts 10.43, Peter says, To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Did you hear that? All the prophets bear witness about him. Paul and Berea, Acts 17 they, they go into the Jewish synagogue. It says, verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures, examining the Old Testament daily to see if these things were so. Why? Because Paul was explaining to them from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Son of God. Paul before Agrippa in Acts 26 Paul says, I stand here testifying both the small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, we would proclaim light both to people and Gentiles, both to our people and Gentiles. So the method of the apostles was to say, look, they did the same thing that Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. Let me show you from the Scriptures that Jesus is the fulfillment, the Son of God, because all the Scriptures bear witness that He is indeed God's Son. I want to close with another Spurgeon story, okay? Spurgeon told a story once about this, about the Scriptures witnessing to Christ, especially the Old Testament Scriptures. He says, you remember the story of the old minister who heard a sermon by a young man, and when he was asked by the young man, the preacher, what he thought of it, he was rather slow to answer. But the old man at last said, if I must tell you, I did not like your sermon at all. Good news, right? There was no Christ in your sermon. No, answered the young man, because I did not see Christ was in the text. Oh, said the old minister, but do you not know that from every little town and village and tiny hamlet in England there is a road leading to London? And whenever I get to a text, I say to myself, there is a road from here to Jesus Christ, and I mean to keep on his track until I get to him. That's what the Old Testament is, friends. There's a road in every passage that gets to Christ. Uh, Chris Well preached a sermon one time called The Scarlet Thread Through the Bible. There is a bloodline to Christ from every book. So those are the four witnesses. John the Baptist, the works of Christ, the testimony of the Father, and the Old Testament Scriptures. It's not enough just to believe those intellectually. You must trust Christ personally and believe that He is indeed the Son of God. Believe, and you will have life in His name. Heavenly Father, we thank You for these witnesses which are so clear that testify that You are who You said You were, that You were indeed the Son of God, and that You came to 
bear the sins of many and to redeem a people for yourself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And we confess, Lord, with our mouth. We confess, Lord, with these songs that you are the Son of God. From these four witnesses, from, from, from yourself, we believe. I pray, Lord, for those here that have not yet trusted Christ, that that internal witness of the Father, that you would be, that that voice would overwhelm their soul and they would trust Christ and forever be saved. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.